So the United States has two geographic parts, the places our economy and culture tell us to get out of and the places we're told to seek in order to make it. But I think there's a shift going on beneath the surface of our national story. It's a return to, or a refusal to leave, the least glamorous corners of this country. I'm talking about the small towns, rural lands, working class communities that national headlines say are dying in order to fight for the place that feels like home. I'm Sarah Smarsh, and this is The Homecomers. I want to find people who are just as passionate about not seeing this place die. I don't think I can continue to exist within this region without trying to focus my lens and trying to understand other people who give a shit. West Virginia filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon is a coal miner's daughter whose films offer a counter to negative stigmas about Appalachia, about the struggling communities she grew up in, and about the opioid crisis that's become synonymous with her home. Her Emmy-winning, Oscar-nominated short documentary, Heroin, for instance, which is set in Huntington, West Virginia, isn't all about despair, like most of those stories, but rather it focuses on problem-solving efforts by three local women. Like so many of the common people she follows with her camera, Sheldon is committed to, and still resides in, by the way, a place often misconveyed in headlines and derided in popular culture. She's had plenty of opportunities to do so, I imagine, but she hasn't left home for Hollywood, which is precisely why she's well-equipped to get the story about West Virginia right. Sheldon spoke with me during the spring of 2018 when she was at work on the full-length Netflix film Recovery Boys from her home in Charleston, West Virginia. How would you describe, first off, the class background of your upbringing? I was born in Abingdon, Virginia, and I grew up in Logan, West Virginia, And we moved 12 times before I was in sixth grade between those two towns. My dad worked in the coal industry right out of high school. He worked underground with his dad and then was the first in our family to go to college, which was advised against by his own dad. You know, my grandpa, once my dad got a diploma, said to him, like, I don't know what you plan to do with that piece of paper Mm. because it was a break away from family tradition. And it sort of put my dad in a difficult position, and still to this day, difficult position, being sort of seen as an outsider within his own family, choosing a different path, moving his family away from the location that it was an unspoken rule that everyone in my family would stay in these two hollers. Mm -hmm. And my family did it and we left. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful we did because I've had so many opportunities that a lot of my cousins just haven't been able to access. So we were solidly middle class. I've learned since then that middle class in West Virginia feels and looks and manifests itself a little bit different than maybe someone who grew up in L.A. and calls themselves middle class. Right. 
I went to schools, systems that were underfunded. We lived in a lot of coal company homes, which meant we didn't own them. I remember not being able to paint the walls or like personalize your house in any way. So I would just like cover my closet in stickers because I wanted to really <laughs> personalize my childhood yes. bedroom, but I wasn't allowed because it was owned by the coal company. But we also had our own homes in some places and I never personally wanted for anything. I really feel like my dad's early life decisions impacted me in a pretty big way. So you were a kid in the 90s. The inequality and the rising mortality rates and the addiction crises that we're going to talk about later in the conversation, those trends were already beginning during your childhood while you were relative to that place, middle class. You had a sense of decline in your immediate Vantage, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I think as a kid, you see things, you're not seeing them from a systems point of view like you do as an adult. You're just seeing things as you come across them. And there was a clear disparity and lack of cohesion among some of my classmates whose parents had died or had left or were in prison. You know, I remember one particular kid just really struggling in school, and I I remember he couldn't hold a pencil correctly, and, like, a lot of us other students were trying to teach him. This was, like, in third grade, mm-hmm. and he was raised by his grandparents who were doing their best but really were not in a position to be raising a, a third- and fourth-grade kid. So there were situations like that where you just realized how lucky you were. I mean, there were certainly people I knew that— We're coming from homes where families were severely disabled from the coal industry. You know, there were kids Mm -hmm. I went to school with whose dads no longer could work, whether there's a broken back or whatever it was. So, you know, looking at substance use disorder, there's clear ways that we can tell if someone is more at risk. Not being in a stable environment is clearly not a good way for a child to be raised. It applies stressors to their life that often can put them at risk. I was talking to someone today, a researcher actually from Iceland who's working at West Virginia University, who said that society creates the drug users. And I think that that's a very Iceland community-based opinion, Mm. but I don't think America's ready to own up to the fact that we all share responsibility in the shame and stigma and negative environments that are created that only fuel drug use or substance use disorder. I don't think I was aware of all those things when I was little. I was just more aware that I had it better than some kids. I had a mom that when she got off work would pick me up from school, and my parents were very involved in my life, and not every kid had that, and I I really credit that to where I am today. So much of your work has such a sense of groundedness in place, not just because of a kind of hyper-focus on a defined geographic location, but also, I think, because of the way that you convey stories. I am just curious how you would describe the place of Logan County, West Virginia, as just a piece of earth and topography apart from politics and society and class and all these man-made structures. To this day, when I pass the hills or mountains that there's fog rolling out of them or mist rolling out of them that I don't stop and take a photo, I regret it. But it seems that when reporters come to Appalachia, it's like, number one, run down homes and uh, mm-hmm. abandoned toys. Let's show how desperate the situation is when, you know, the reality is that's some kid's toy. And I'm sure if you talk to them, they'd have a full story in and of themselves that paints a different story than desperation. Logan is a 
gorgeous county and community that's nestled in the coal fields. And I mean, it's it's nature. I'm very connected to nature. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I still like to live in West Virginia, you know, hiking, kayaking, mm-hmm. being out in nature, being able to walk outside and go into Canola State Forest and going to Fayetteville and places to just be among nature. I mean, all my grandparents and parents instilled with us the stewardship of loving nature and taking care of it. So that's what I think of when I think of Logan. I obviously think of floods. There were a lot of floods growing up and there still are to this day. Doesn't help the strip mining and and timbering in Logan County and surrounding counties. When the water um, is pouring down those mountains, it really runs and it floods and it's really devastating. So those things come to mind. And also um, the pawn shop my mom worked at. I would go there after school and just sit in the back room and watch TV. But the people that would come in, whether they were the town drunk or the mm-hmm. preacher, it was like a place where everybody came in, this pawn shop, and just had conversations with the owner named Don and my mom. And my mom would sell people jewelry. And it was just a really interesting way to understand how a town functions with these different types of characters and how they all play a really important role to that fabric. You know, I actually learned about you and your work from Hollow, your interactive documentary that focuses on McDowell County, West Virginia, won a Peabody Award in 2013, which is kind of incredible just in terms of the very early point you were at in your career. I think you were maybe finishing up an MFA at Emerson College right around the moment that you were receiving accolades for that. And I know that that project was kind of a years-long endeavor, but I was so blown away by just showing characters, people, their faces, letting their accents shine, the, the kind of people that might have come in and out of that pawn shop you were just referencing, given the level of import to own their own story, and that story might be about something beautiful or a beautiful thread of resilience within a community that, yes, has ugly aspects. It was around that time that I was first starting to think as a writer about how much I had kind of trained so many of those aspects of my own rural Kansas upbringing out of my voice and out of my kind of way of navigating the world. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) hot damn, here is some video and audio where I see and hear the people that that I am wanting to be writing about. And it's so rare, it stuck with me. You've already touched to some extent on how the media by and large fails in documenting documenting your place with any accuracy or integrity. What do you think is the relationship of your chosen medium, which I suppose we could call video documentary with some 21st century expansion on that term? What is the best role that that medium can play in telling difficult stories sometimes about places that are struggling like your home? You know, I actually went to West Virginia University to study writing and photography. And I was always really uncomfortable with writing because I just felt the way people said things was the best way to say them. Um, <laughs> there's writers that can put things down and, and it's it's better than real life, but I was never one of those. And so once I picked up first an audio recorder and then started doing documentary work, just hearing people talk and hearing people express themselves in the way they choose to express themselves and not having to mediate what they're saying in a Mm. real obvious way. Of course, I'm editing and I'm curating and I'm presenting people the way I see them ultimately. I mean, I'm often baffled that people would allow me to do this. And, you know, (laughs) it's just such a crazy thing to me that people do agree to this and that they do trust you with these stories. And so I take that so seriously that people are giving me their stories because 
I live here. I see these people every day. I'm held responsible by them. I'm not parachuting in for two days and coming in with my editor's rules of what I need to do. You know, I stay here and, and I'm held responsible if I do something. I think even West Virginians, sometimes I make them uncomfortable with my work because I don't just tell positive stories. We isolate Appalachia as being so rare in America, but the stories are so universal. The stories of ups and downs are across the universe. And the resilience that I'm drawn to comes from, I think, my need to know that people are trying. I don't think I can continue to exist within this region, which has seen very little progress over the past 60 years without trying to focus my lens and trying to understand other people who give a shit. Essentially, I think that's what it comes down to. I want to find people who are just as passionate about not seeing this place die. And, you know, I have a lot of regret about losing my accent. When I went to college, I consciously got rid of my accent. People would repeat me. They would mock me. Um, They would repeat back what I was saying. And I knew that if I wanted to be taken seriously, I couldn't have that accent. And at that time, I was 18 and thought I was never going to come back to West Virginia, so it didn't really matter. But now that I'm back, it always is sort of a thing. Like, my accent will come back if I'm with my family for a while or with people who have an accent. But it is kind of gone, and that part of my identity is lost in that way. And so the documentary form just allows me to to be in people's lives. It allows me to be present. It allows me to witness things that I want to share with the world about this place that I think are universal. I certainly, as a journalist who has chosen to stay in my native state of Kansas, I am partial to your perspective. And I think being present in your home is improves the work immensely. I, I can't imagine that anyone would disagree with that. You have described, though, that it's like through the work, you are paradoxically at once making yourself sort of an outsider in some ways, mm-hmm. kind of like your dad did as his first generation yeah. college student, but also keeping not just one foot, but two feet in yeah. West Virginia. And yet it's sort of like your mind is also in other pastures. How does your community relate to that? You know, I understand the stereotypes. I understand the tropes. I know what baggage people are going to bring to the project when they come and see West Virginia or Appalachia. So it's easier to shut that down. I think that when you work in a bubble and work in isolation, if you're just producing content for West Virginia and no one else to see it, there's all these assumed things that you don't really have to come up against. But there's a responsibility in the work to be an outsider and to have perspective on your work. You know, you have to be the insider that cares, but you have to also be the outsider to know what perspectives people are going to bring. I mean, I think that I'm not a fan of, you know, guard dogging Appalachia. You know, I don't I don't believe that I'm the only person that could tell these stories. I personally have never suffered from substance use disorder, and I'm telling stories of addiction. Like, there's that's problematic in and of itself. So I'm very aware of my shortcomings and all those types of things. But I think that it doesn't matter where you're from or where you're coming from. The access that you're granted and the stories that people will give you are only as deep as you allow them to be. If you stick around long enough in any situation, I think people will open up. In situations where I feel like people aren't opening up, I don't like put that fault on myself. I think that, you know, there's just some people that are less less likely to open up than others. But I, I mean, I certainly think that with heroin, the three women 
who were in the film, you know, we had a special relationship and they let us see things that they haven't let other media see. And they trusted us because we paid our dues. You know, we stuck around long enough without cameras and and really tried to get to know them in a way that felt deeper than a lot of other media coming in. So it's not that I don't think it can be done correctly, because I certainly think it's needed because journalism is not being funded here in the state. And so we do need people helping to spread the news about what's happening here. But I just think it's on the actual reporter, journalist, writer, documentary filmmaker. It's on them to be willing to create a deeper relationship. And I think that that takes time. And oftentimes that time is money. So I think there's a reason why, you know, it's not as deep as it could be. You know, I have the luxury of living here. Most people wouldn't call living in West Virginia a luxury, but for me it is, (laughs) you know. For me it means I can spend an entire day with someone having lunch with them. And it's those times off camera for me that I think are actually more important and that inform the work that happens on camera. And I often wonder if people can feel that because I feel it, you know, once I turn the camera back on and we've had a moment off camera, the dynamics change, you know, and there's a huge power structure involved. You're documenting someone, you know, I I really hate using the word subjects and characters and those types of things, Mm -hmm. but it is what it is. You know, you are, there is a power structure and I don't deny that. So I think it's on the reporter. I don't care where you're from if you're willing to go deep with that person and just allow them to be who they are and not correct them. I mean, the number of times I've witnessed a reporter come to Appalachia and interrupt someone during an interview or during a time when they're emotional to get them to say something in a better way in their opinion. I mean, I just don't do that in my work. You know, if you need to get something a second time, you let someone finish where they are and you bring it back up later. So there's this using people for sound bites sort of data collection that's been happening for a long time here. And I just try to avoid that and let people be who they are. Your films do kind of represent in some ways for me a a corrective of stereotypes and tropes, some of which you've already discussed, a lot of which are a result of, like you said, journalists just not having enough time to get it right. Some of it, I think, is a result of subconscious or conscious classist bias on the part of the person doing the storytelling. I know that earlier in your career, you did a film in post-Katrina, Ninth War, New Orleans, and then as we've discussed, McDowell County and Huntington in West Virginia. These are all places that in different ways have had deep narratives of despair and destitution carved into them by popular media, heroin specifically in the realm of addiction. So you have this recurring professional theme of kind of reframing or redefining issues to focus on the solutions, the resilience, the dignity. I'm curious what you think led you to this recurring mission in your work to tell complex stories about the solutions and the problem solvers on the ground in places that are often conveyed through poverty porn or stereotypes? I think at the end of the day, I find it more interesting. I find it more dynamic. I find it less known. You know, when I go home for Christmas with my cousins and uncles and everyone, the conversation is about the price of coal, how much wood everyone's chopped that year, how long it's going to last, how much the chickens cost this time of year, how working on a cement floor really hurts your back, how they cut your pay at the front desk at the hospital. And I think that they helped me become a journalist. They helped me care about stories that impact all of them. At the same tone, like, 
I'm not a negative person. I don't like to live in negativity. I don't like writing people off and writing situations off as hopeless. I think there's a big difference between being hopeful and being optimistic. You know, optimistic means you're not going to do anything about it. It's just going to turn out all right. Pessimistic, you're not going to do anything about it. It's going to turn out terrible. But for me, this hopefulness lies somewhere where Jan Rader and Patricia Keller and Nisha Freeman from Heroin are, which is they don't actually know if what they're doing is going to have long-term impact, but they believe that it will have some impact. We can talk about the problem all day, but who's trying to change it and what does that look like? In previous interviews, you have said that there are a lot of stereotypes about opioids and and who is vulnerable to that addiction and what that looks like in a community. You've pushed back on that before and said all of us are one bad injury away from the danger zone of getting hooked. And also that this crisis really knows no class, race, or gender. I wanted to kind of explore the class angle of that specifically. Wealthy Americans are actually doing better than ever. From 2000 to 2014, wealthy Americans gained five years in life expectancy, but poor Americans did not improve. Mm -hmm. Men in the top 1% live 15 years longer than those in the bottom 1%. For women, it's a difference of about 10 years. And then maybe most relevant to your work and the place where you train your your camera lens, rural middle-aged white women in particular have seen a, a mortality rate increase of almost 50% since 1990. That's according to a Washington Post data analysis. Mm-hmm. So, so, so economic status certainly affects outcomes. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship between class and addiction and specifically rural life and addiction? You know, one of the reasons it's important to say that addiction sees no gender, race, and class is for a number of reasons. Communities of color have been completely disregarded in the conversation of rehabilitation, have been completely locked up and thrown away for their addictions. And I think it's a a valid point to question why the opioid crisis is getting so much attention right now when it's largely affecting white populations In terms of class, you know, when heroin came out, there was a review, and someone had written this about heroin. The concept of seeing people from a lower-income town struggling with addiction could turn some people off and lose their interest right off the bat. (laughs) So the fact that we have such a minor capacity to care about a class that we know nothing about butts up against a lot of the work I'm doing. I think there are very clear indicators that say chronic poverty and addiction go hand in hand. When you're in a system that's broken, when you're in a household that drugs are present or a household that isn't stable, I mean, that's not just in white rural or black rural or black urban, that's across the board. But I think that for me, I mean, I came into this with this knowledge that my friends were dying. I went to this thing with my parents and found out that a girl that I went to prom with was found dead in a uh, Kentucky hotel. She had overdosed and her boyfriend was being potentially charged with her murder because he had supplied the drugs. And then I had had friends that I found out when I was filming a scene for Recovery Boys during Overdose Awareness Day, I heard their names being called out over the speaker when they were naming all the OD victims. So 
And those are all women. I have a handful of male friends that have overdosed as well, but majority of my experience has been losing female friends from middle school and high school who I've lost touch with. I think that when we talk about rural addiction, I think as a society, we still see this as as a bad decision, as a moral failure. And until we take morality out of it and truly understand the many different factors that steer someone towards addiction... Or, you know, some of the girls that I knew actually were prescribed Oxycontin. You know, four out of five heroin users started with a legal pill. So I just think there's a lot of misunderstanding around how powerful these drugs are. And, you know, when you're looking at a, a rural community, I think there's there's like three or four needle exchanges, syringe exchanges in West Virginia. So some people are traveling like six hours round trip to get clean needles. And this is a huge dispute in Charleston, where I live right now, our mayor is wanting to shut down our syringe exchange by over-exaggerating the number of needles that are on the street, when in fact the needle exchange itself is based on the fact that you bring in the used needles and they exchange them for clean needles. This is the whole idea of a needle exchange, to get needles off the street. So there's just a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of morality brought to the conversation about who's worthy, even within the same class. People that are judging those for being on welfare, you know, they feel a higher moral standard because they themselves aren't on welfare. You're seeing that the same thing with people suffering from addiction. The substance is irrelevant to me. That's what I've learned in the filmmaking process. It really doesn't matter. I mean, alcohol kills tons of people. You know, the substance is irrelevant. It's the disconnection from society that is the part we have to heal. And the guys that we film in Recovery Boys are all feeling a lack of belonging when they come to rehab. They've been so isolated with whatever substance that they were hooked on at that moment that they have no sense of belonging to a larger community. And that's where America really needs to step up and take responsibility with the environments we create, the stigma, whether it's class stigma or addiction stigma, the whole idea that some people are worth a second chance and and others aren't. A child from an upper middle class family in Connecticut is worth a third chance and has access to rehab, but a kid from a quote-unquote bad family from Morgantown, West Virginia, should rot in jail or just let him die. There's very clear standards in how we treat people. I'm still learning every day. I learn from the guys that we've been filming. I learn from the women in heroin. And, and I think the biggest thing for me is learning that, you know, addiction cannot manifest and grow and fester and sort of get out of control in strong communities that look out for one another. Addiction is only fed by isolation in America and that stigmatizing. Some of what you just talked about kind of touched on a very recently in the news study out of the universities of Virginia and Wisconsin, I believe, suggesting that naloxone, also known as Narcan, which people who have watched heroin or been following this issue in the news know is administrated in an emergency situation to save someone's life who is overdosing. This is a very expensive drug. In some cases, communities are accessing it by way of settlements with the very big pharma companies who initially 
pushed the pills into these communities that began the cycles of addiction. The study found that or suggested that increased access to naloxone has basically also increased risky behavior, quote unquote, with regard to drug use. So essentially the idea which you handled delicately in heroin, when Jan, the fire chief, delivers naloxone to first responders, some of them are very dubious, like, do I have to administer this? And you, you kind of glean that there is quandary within the community of like, like you said, who deserves a second chance and to what extent are we just perpetuating this cycle, this burden on our society and you know, it is sort of implied in some of these judgment calls, well, it'd be easier just to let them die. So I was curious, is this kind of like a strong feature of the local conversation about addiction in the community? I mean, there's a real divide. On one side of the fence is this is a public health crisis. You know, West Virginia's overdose death rate is double the national average. We have more than two people a day dying in West Virginia, which is a really small state. So we feel that loss in a big way. That also means that those are people who cannot enter the workforce. We have a struggling economy. This feeds everything. It also means there's a lot of emergency room visits. People are potentially sharing needles and passing hep C, HIV. So from that perspective, you have public health advocates who are saying, put aside this right, wrong choice and moral failure argument. And sometimes you can get people over to your side on that. But the fact is, I actually wouldn't have a feature-length documentary about men in recovery unless Narcan was available. All of them would have been dead. I mean, they were all Narcan so many times. One of the guys that we filmed with that has now 18 months clean and is working in a construction company, doing really well, healthy relationships, he was Narcan 14 times. So mm. I just think about them and I think about... The fact that I know this drug is extremely expensive. I know we're bankrupt as a state. But for me, I mean, there's nothing more important than looking at lives lost and people dying. I mean, we should care for one another at the end of the day. We should care. And we should make pharmaceutical companies pay. And I mean, I'm not a first responder, but I certainly know the amount of PTSD they have already. And I know that you know, if we have a three strikes you're out type situation where we will only administer Narcan three times and the fourth time we show up, if it's the same person, if they've had it three times, we won't, you know, which has been proposed in Ohio. Imagine the PTSD from that, literally not being able to help someone and watching them die right in front of you. So I think the implications of not taking action are clearly way worse than stepping up to the plate and figuring out what we can do to help each other. You mentioned the culpability of pharmaceutical companies. Let's talk about that specifically for a minute. There was a widely read New Yorker piece last year on the essentially family empire that developed yep. OxyContin. That piece reported that 200,000 Americans have died from prescription opioids, I think in the last 20 years, maybe. There is some historical precedent for this relationship between a, a drug that is potentially begun innocently. During the Civil War, morphine was used widely as a painkiller. Many soldiers ended up addicted. In 1898, Bayer first manufactured heroin as a painkiller mm -hmm. alternative to morphine that was billed as non-addictive. Then we had legislation throughout the 20th century essentially attempting to ban imports of recreational opioids, regulate and tax any business distributing them. 
The sale and production of heroin was banned in 1924. Then in the 1960s, soldiers come back from Vietnam hooked on heroin. And then we've got Nixon's war on drugs in the 70s. In the 80s, we've got like an increasingly punitive society where uh, Congress is enacting mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenders. Drug courts open in 1989 to handle basically skyrocketing caseloads. So basically you've got federal laws, business interests, powerful lobbies, the prison industrial complex, all of these enormous systems are swirling around. And then you, as this filmmaker from West Virginia, come in and basically, to my mind, document what all of that has wrought with such a storm of factors swirling around in a politically overwhelming climate. Where does someone who wants to be part of the solution even begin? Any person that's been addicted when they are in recovery, whatever that looks like as recovery comes in all shapes and sizes, will tell you that they felt so purposeless when they were trapped, that they were solely there to find and serve the drug. And with opiates, there's been a lot of money made off that pain. And there's been a lot of greed passed around that has resulted in such a normalization of these drugs that has allowed people to move to carfentanil, heroin, and fentanyl, um, which is why we're seeing overdose rates so high now. So ultimately, I think until we decide to treat each other differently, until we decide to look at other ways to treat drugs in our society differently, then, you know, we can put in all the systems, but they're just going to be the same as in the past. I mean, we're just creating the same problem over and over. I'm curious if the essentially stars of your film have received any opportunity to answer this same question of what are the solutions. I mean, if Nisha Freeman was on this call right now, she'd say, put social workers in schools. Why are we waiting for children who are at risk, who we know they're at risk for addiction? Why are we waiting for them to get addicted? Why aren't we providing them with preventative methods and support and help when they're young, when we know they're vulnerable. You know, everything from the social systems to the economy to the foster care system, I mean, everything is impacted by this. And so her big solution is, let's get people in the schools. Why do we not have a connective tissue between these different agencies? And, you know, Jan Rader would say, one of the big things that needs to happen is connecting people in recovery with first responders so they don't feel totally hopeless about their situation. I mean, trying to get rehabs and firehouses together to, to share breakfast and to understand each other. And, you know, Judge Keller is a huge advocate for drug court, which is severely underfunded, barely funded in West Virginia. Getting rid of the checkbox for the felony that allows all the people that she works with that get clean over the course of two years in their drug court that can't re-enter the job market because of that felony. So they've been able to talk about all those solutions that is one of the reasons why I do love documentary film is I can put other people up and raise their voices up. And many times they say the things I want to say, but it just don't feel mm. like I should say. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they say things I don't agree with, and that's fine too. So they, they have the solutions, and I feel like they've been given a really good platform. Actually, they're a little exhausted from it. <laughs> they asked me to help them curb some of these requests that are coming in because there's been so many requests for them to give talks and screenings. And so I've been I've been their agent telling people they, <laughs> the reason they're so awesome is because they're boots on the ground. So we're going to let them be that again. So <laughs> I got such a kick out of your kind of documenting your experience at the Oscars and, and that they went along with you. <laughs> what could be more boss than Jan Rader wearing her fire chief My jacket God. over her dress She's on the red awesome. <laughs> Jan Rader is not only is she a total boss for wearing that fire jacket, but 
she instantly was recognized by people who had seen the film because she looks like a version of Jodie Foster. And then, like you, exactly see her, a and then you see her with J- this mm-hmm. fire jacket on and you're like, that looks familiar. Like Meryl Streep recognized her and was like, I so appreciate your work. She was like, I voted for you all. And like, kissed Jan on the cheek. She was told us like 20 times about it. And I was like, Jan, we know. (laughs) (laughs) You have said before that that one of the reasons that you were inspired as someone who did leave your home to get a college degree and even an MFA, part of why you were inspired to kind of turn the camera back toward home was when you read about the quote unquote brain drain from rural communities like yours. And and you didn't want to see a place that you love Die to me. Your being um, in LA at kind of like this this pinnacle of a, of a of a glamorous world, speaking the truth of West Virginia, and not only that, but but bringing living beings from that place along with you. You're one of them, of course. I, I think that kind of symbolizes maybe a shift in culture that is coming by necessity. So why why at this moment should we see more people in, endeavoring in the direction that you have? First of all, as like a coal miner's daughter, as someone who felt so inferior in so many aspects of my life growing up once I left West Virginia, to be there as a West Virginian with these incredible West Virginia women was a really big deal for me. I truly believe that if you have access to a story and you think someone else is half-assing it and not telling it well, and you think you can do a deeper dive into it, I really think you have a responsibility to do so. And not only if you have access, if you care. Like, I think you really have to care to have your assumptions challenged, care to be curious and spend time. And so I started a Southern documentary collective. It's Appalachian and Southern. And I mean, our biggest goal is to just elevate the work of Southern and Appalachian makers, filmmakers, so that, you know, when the New York Times decides they want to do a story on the teacher strike or chemical spill or whatever it may be in my own backyard, we can say to them, don't just hire us as a fixer. Actually work with us in a deep way because the result you're going to get from that is someone who's invested in the community and is going to try to tell something different than I think a straightforward national perspective might be. America used to be made of writers and filmmakers that were dispatched and lived and were from all over this country. I mean, Flannery O'Connor was a staple in Georgia, and Georgia didn't always love her work, but Georgia was her work, and she was Georgia. And in many ways, I hope that I see some people return to where they have roots, dig into those. Elaine McMillian Sheldon is an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker who explores stories of identity, resilience, and hope. She's the director of two documentaries about the U.S. opioid crisis, Recovery Boys, and the Emmy-winning Heroin. Sheldon also received a 2013 Peabody Award and a 2014 Emmy nomination for her interactive documentary, Hollow, which I highly recommend. It reveals everyday life in post-industrial rural Appalachia. Homecomer's production team is audio editor Jesse Brenneman in Montana, composer Daniel Hart in California by way of Texas, 
web designer Tamika Pittman in New York by way of Colorado, illustrator Angie Pickman in Kansas, and communications manager Kendra Bozarth in New York by way of Kansas. And I'm your host and executive producer, Sarah Smarsh in Kansas. If you want to hear more episodes of The Homecomers or access Spanish translations and just get more information, go to thehomecomers.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and tell us your homecomer story. Hey, thank you to Wes Jackson, co-founder of the Land Institute in rural Kansas, for his blessing to use a term he coined, homecomers, for the title of this show. And special thanks this episode to research assistant Ida Herzog-Vito at the Harvard Kennedy School. The Homecomers is an independent production of Free State Media. It was created and produced with support from the Ford Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University.